Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change in Environmental Justice podcast, a partnership between Environmental Health News and Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the editor of Agents of Change. So as we head into the middle of summer, we want to let you all know that the podcast is taking a short break. We will be off until September, September 7th to be exact, and then we will be right back to our bi-weekly schedule of podcasts. So don't worry, stay tuned, stay subscribed. We are not going anywhere. Rather, we're taking a short summer breather before we get right back into it. All right, today's guest hanging out is Dr. Max Ong an assistant professor at the University of Southern California Keck School of Medicine, an assistant director at the Agents of Change and Environmental Justice Program. Ong talks about the mix of insidious pollutant exposures we all face, how these exposures impact the most vulnerable among us, and how policy can catch up to the ever-growing list of concerning chemicals. Enjoy! So Max, uh, it is good to see you, but I will full disclosure for the the listeners, I see you quite a bit now. You are part (laughs) of the Agents of Change program. You are now an assistant director, and you were also part of our first cohort, uh, and you wrote an essay about oil and gas development where you grew up. So I just want to start there. If you could tell me a little bit about what that experience was like as a researcher, being out there with your views and thoughts, what the reception was to your article, and a little bit about the work you're doing now with us. Yeah, so... You know, the article was such a great opportunity for me to, you know, reflect on the the sort of environmental issues that are facing um, communities that have high oil and gas production. But it was also interesting because having grown up there, you know, I've, I've had friends that work in the oil and gas fields. Um, that's like their first job out of high school. It pays really well, you know, it's it's basically the source of, um, you know, economic growth for a lot of folks in those communities. So uh, in, in my essay, I touched on that um, a bit, thinking about, you know, sort of how even though these have environmental impacts, these different industries, there's also this issue of like, how do you, you know, deal with folks um, that rely on this for, you know, their everyday lives. Um, So I think, you know, when I wrote the essay, it was largely, you know, well-received from, I I had some folks, you know, reach out to me and, um, you know, tell me that, that they found the article to be, you know, an important reflection on that balance. Um, I've had, um, we got this article invited to be like in a undergraduate textbook chapter, which was really exciting, you know, that um, new scholars will be reading this as they think about, you know, creative writing and um, and reflecting on environmental issues. And yeah, so, you know, I think that's sort of been a great um, foundation as I sort of navigated, you know, this next stage of my career and thinking about, you know, ways to incorporate um, communities and think about communities' inputs as we try to shape policy, environmental policy. Um, and so that's been a, you know, a huge uh, factor, especially with you know, some of my work at UCSF, which you know, we can talk a little bit more about um, later on. Um, in terms of the, uh, the program, so I, you know, I joined um, the leadership here um, in March. 
And uh, it's been really exciting because I've been working um, really closely with um, uh, Dr. Ami Soda, you, um, and uh, uh, Yoshi as well, and just thinking through like, um, you know, different ways that we can engage uh, existing scholars in the program, but also ways that we can, you know, galvanize the new cohorts towards different focus groups and thinking about how can we leverage that skill um, in terms of outreach and in terms of um, getting our, you know, Agents of Change fellows out there to, you know, communicate with um, important stakeholders. So that's been really exciting so far. Good. And it's so it's so awesome to be part of the program and already a few years in have people like yourself who are part of it, who have now grown in your career and, and have new positions and then come back. I mean, for me, when when uh, uh, Ami and I started this to, to already see people like you coming back and being a part of it after being in the first cohort is just it's just wild how how kind of fast time flies, but it's been really excellent. And just for people, listeners who maybe didn't read your essay, so it was focused in Kern County, California, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. And and I really appreciated the idea of thinking about the economic ramifications. I thought that was one of the uh, aspects of your essays that was, was crucial. When we think about weaning off oil and gas or just trying to get rid of pollutant, polluting industries, thinking about the people that rely on these for, for their livelihoods. Yeah, and it was, you know, it's so great, like during our sessions, like in that first fellowship year, just, you know, getting the feedback from you, um, workshopping it with the other fellows was such a great experience because, you know, I felt like I was consistently challenged to think about, you know, every single word I put into that essay and like the impact, you know, and um, not being afraid to say radical but social justice oriented things, you know, and that I, I did feel like that was such a great learning experience to, to sort of go through that exercise. Well, that's great to hear. And I hope hope future folks feel the same way. That's that's definitely the spirit of the program. And so you went to University of California, Santa Cruz for your undergrad. And I believe you're at University of Michigan over here, kind of by me, way south, but kind of by yeah. me <laughs> for your master's and your PhD. I love Ann Arbor, such a fun town. Um, mm-hmm. What drew you to public health and how did you come to start researching environmental exposures? Yeah, so, okay, at Santa Cruz, I'd say I gained a really diverse set of research and education experiences. So, you know, my my tra- my undergraduate training was in molecular biology. And so I was just really drawn to um, some of my more advanced coursework around immunology and thinking about the different mechanisms that underlie various different, you know, health conditions. And that's was sort of, you know, my bedrock in terms of the coursework. Um, on the other end, I was doing research in a stable isotope laboratory in the ocean sciences department, which is totally, you know, uh, not, you know, totally different in terms of science, but like just a totally different, you know, direction in terms of how to apply, you know, uh, scientific research. And so, you know, in that lab, I was um, working with an exciting team to reconstruct past uh, sea surface temperatures over the course of several thousands of years. So we were, you know, it was a paleoclimatology lab. And 
So it's very focused on trying to understand past climate conditions so that we have data to inform future climate models. So there's this, you know, this duality between, you know, the molecular health sciences and more environmental climate change focused um, research. And I think, you know, trying to think through these two different experiences, um, it was a little bit next, like after undergrad, you know, I, I struggled a little bit with trying to find my path forward. And after undergrad, I actually, I took two years um, where I, I, I wasn't in school, I was teaching full time for uh, a STEM diversity program that focused on, uh, you know, retaining uh, undergraduates from historically marginalized backgrounds in, in, in the STEM fields. And so, you know, during that time, it gave me a little bit more breathing room to like think through sort of what are my next steps. Um, and, you know, I got involved with um, uh, the Society for the Advancement of Chicanos and Native Americans in Science. So I was working with them in the summer. Um, and through that, I started networking with all of these different, because they're so well connected with, um, you know, all of these universities across the country. And, and through that, I sort of got connected with different professors from, you know, different schools of public health. And as I was brainstorming through, you know, potential graduate training, um, and really trying to lean in on those, you know, background experiences, it became clear to me as I was learning about grad programs that something, um, you know, that would fulfill me is a blend of environmental research plus health sciences plus policy, right? And so, you know, I, I, I kind of converge it to like environmental health policy is like sort of where I was thinking. Um, and then, so when I was looking at different programs, um, you know, Michigan really stood out to me. Uh, they had a super strong, you know, Department of Environmental Health. And, you know, when I spoke to different faculty and different current students, it seemed like there was a lot of opportunity, you know, if you, and if you came in with environmental health to sort of branch out and also gain skills in, you know, policy and, um, on um, some of the more data analysis, epidemiology heavy uh, coursework. And, you know, so that's the way, that's the sort of path that brought me to Michigan. Um, and at Michigan, it, you know, I don't think any of this was planned, but I was able to receive um, this really exciting fellowship from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Um, it was called the Health Policy Research Scholars Fellowship. And that really just, amplified my health policy training. And it, um, you know, it basically allowed me to integrate that type of training into my more science heavy um, applications in environmental health. And so, you know, that's sort of like, you know, my entry point into, um, into public health and the way I've been, you know, um, navigating it in terms of like uh, career trajectory. What's one place that you miss in Ann Arbor? Oh, um, so I love ramen. <laughs> uh, I think anybody that knows me really well um, knows that I'll <laughs> that I'll always, you know, go find like 
the best ramen shop in any city <laughs> I'm, I'm in. Um, so there's actually like a pretty, you know, uh, delicious ramen place uh, in downtown Ann Arbor called Slurping Turtle. Um, and so that's, you know, that's one place I miss. I, it's, it's, you know, where I was living most recently in, in Ann Arbor, um, it's in the middle of the campus and, and my home. So, or my former home. So like, you know, on the walk back, I, I've been known to just like, <laughs> be like, all right, I'm canceling dinner, you know, <laughs> cooking dinner. I'm just going to get ramen. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a lot, there's a lot in a town that's not huge. There's a lot of super good food and good music yeah. and good places to get a drink. So uh, before we get on to how you've taken that environmental research and, and what you're doing with it now, I wanted to ask you, what's a defining moment that shaped your identity? Oh yeah. Um, you know, I, so I think I can, you know, I could time travel back to a lot of different moments long, longer times ago, but I actually, I think like, you know, in terms of something that's really defined me, it's like, for me, um, one of the experiences most recently was, you know, I was working at UCSF and um, I had the opportunity to basically, you know, co-lead my first big um, R01 proposal. And I think what was really exciting about this proposal was, you know, I was focusing on basically trying to better understand um, mental health disparities among immigrant women um, and and, um, focus on how environmental exposures are potentially impacting uh, mental health disparities in, in this population. And I think what was like really, you know, pivotal for me as, as a scholar was this is sort of a moment where, you know, after I've developed all of the training, you know, earned the PhD, you know, uh, got to this point in my career, I'm able to now develop research questions and research proposals that literally converge my identity as a as an immigrant scholar, but also focus on important salient problems that are impacting these communities. Um, you know, I will say that grant you know hasn't been funded yet, so you know we we didn't get it on the first try, <laughs> but I. I will be persisting on it and trying again and, you know, reshaping it in, in different ways. But I, you know, nonetheless, I, I still look back at that experience and um, think that it's been a huge, you know, moment for me to um, really just feel empowered to, to use my skills to, you know, and, and my lived experiences to pursue research that, that not very not very many folks are doing and that I think is you know really important yeah and hopefully bettering science and shaping what environmental science looks like and then take it one step further hopefully Mm -hmm. making lives better right and 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 the communities you're researching or or looking into in some way having a positive impact so that that's definitely a defining moment I think that's great and hopefully it gets funded at some point (laughs) yeah eventually i'm trying i'm trying you know different ways to to sort of get it funded so crossing fingers (laughs) so so now you're really broadly your focus now is on what we're exposed to that impact our health and and human development 
So just just kind of a 10,000 foot view, could walk me through some of the things that we're exposed to that kind of keep you up at night. What are you looking at um, exposure wise that we should be concerned about? Yeah, so, so, you know, historically, in, in terms of like what I've done research on so far, um, I've focused a lot on, you know, endocrine disrupting chemicals. And this includes, for example, um, a lot of different chemicals found in plastics and different, you know, personal care products that you use on a daily basis, like lotion, shampoos. So, you know, some chemicals include phthalates, um, phenols, parabens. I've, so I've done a lot of research on these endocrine disrupting chemicals. Um, particularly, I've focused on how they're influencing maternal health conditions and um, potentially and what implications that has for, you know, infant health later in life. Um, and sort of my core um, research applications in that in that space is to try to disentangle biological mechanisms, right? So that's, that's sort of been the bedrock of my my PhD dissertation is identifying different biological pathways that might be affected by these chemicals and trying to, you know, illustrate that um, in, in these different studies that, that we've published so that, so that different, um, you know, scholars can learn about those mechanisms and build on those when they think about risk assessment and um, trying to identify, you know, high risk um, scenarios with these high exposures and thinking about what pathways might be, you know, influenced by those exposures. Can you talk a little bit about, so I think when we historically think about environmental pollution and things that harm us, we think of, let's use lead for an example, the more lead that I'm exposed to, or that my my nephew is exposed to, the, it's the more toxic it is. Where endocrine disrupting compounds, it doesn't always work that way. There can be very tiny amounts of exposure that that wreak havoc on the body and maybe at a higher exposure, it's not the same. So can you talk a little bit about, first of all, what, when we say endocrine disrupting compounds, what, what we mean, um, and also kind of the challenge of, of identifying how toxic they are because they don't always behave like traditional toxics. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah. So, you know, just to set the baseline. So, you know, when we say endocrine disrupting chemicals, um, essentially, what that means is that these chemicals, especially, you know, based on in vitro mechanistic laboratory experiments, have these chemicals have been shown to have, you know, properties where they can mimic um, hormone signaling and they can essentially, you know, alter um, concentrations of different hormone production. And this has, I mean, even though we call them endocrine disrupting chemicals, this has wide implications for various different pathways because not only can they, you know, affect the endocrine system and hormone production, but be- because the endocrine system is so intimately connected to um, the immune system, for example, uh, these chemicals can also elicit inflammatory responses. So they can, you know, cause immune cells to upregulate these proteins that are involved with inflammation. And um, this can have downstream effects on, you know, 
cardiovascular function, on um, you know tissue damage. So all sorts of different downstream effects, and that's what makes these chemicals, you know, very tricky to understand because if they're affecting various different pathways, there's all sorts of feedback loops that might be occurring and disentangling those different feedback loops and those different mechanisms is really challenging. In terms of the dosage, um, you know, what you're saying is about the concentrations and different, you know, levels of concentrations being important. That's also a huge consideration, right? Because, um, you know, there's some evidence that, you know, particular endocrine disrupting chemicals can have nonlinear relationships. So it's like even low doses can have effects and maybe um, you might not see effects in the middle range, but then you might see effects in the higher range. And, you know, that's, that's a really tricky, especially when you're trying to investigate these chemicals in a large, um, you know, prospective cohort in, you know, in an epidemiology study where you have, a, you know, a huge distribution of these chemicals and the distribution might be different based on which study population you're focusing on. So yeah, all of those things are um, incredibly challenging and, um, I'm, you know, a lot of the research and collaborations I'm working on now is these, you know, multi-center, multi-cohort investigations where we're integrating data across different birth cohorts. And, you know, that's one of the ways that we can sort of tackle this problem is having, um, you know, a larger sample, a larger diverse sample that we can, um, you know, have better understanding of the different distributions of these exposures. And so, as you mentioned, a lot of your work is focused on babies, pregnant people, um, kind of fetal exposures. Can you talk about the specific vulnerabilities for, for these groups and, and what we know about environmental exposures during this really critical window of development? Yeah. So basically, um, you know, a huge piece of my research is built on, the developmental origins of health and disease hypothesis, which proposes that, you know, early life exposures can have, you know, can be affecting key biological processes in utero that can essentially influence the trajectory of infant development for many, many years. So this could be metabolic health, this could be neurodevelopment. Um, so particularly, I've been focused on neurodevelopment, um, and that's where my research program is um, is shifting towards right now in terms of you know my funded projects. And what we're seeing so far is that um, from preliminary data is that maternal biomarker profiles um, that we've measured in in some of our pilot studies, are associated with early measures of infant neurodevelopment. So after pregnancy, and those same biomarkers are also associated with environmental chemicals, such as the phthalates from the consumer products. And so, you know, our running hypothesis is that these chemicals are influencing different biomarker profiles in the mom during pregnancy, and that's potentially influencing um, key neurodevelopmental um, 
features in the developing fetus, and that's persisting into um, infancy. And so that's, you know, one of the major pieces that I'm trying to work on. Um, and so right now, you know, we're building on that preliminary work, and we're expanding it into multiple different cohorts, measuring these biomarkers. And the idea is that, you know, from the study, we'll be able to characterize these early mechanisms of neurotoxicity, potential neurotoxicity, but then also hopefully use these biomarkers as, um, you know, potential predictive tools that, that we can help to identify um, potential neurodevelopmental outcomes later um, in life. So just so I'm clear, the, the, the basic idea is that the mother is exposed to a, a or the, the pregnant person is exposed to a compound and you're seeing, and by biomarkers, what, what do you mean? What are you looking at? Yeah, so um, there's all sorts of biomarkers that, you know, that, we, that I've been researching over, over the past few years. Um, but most recently, I've, I've been focusing on these um, targeted bioactive lipids. So uh, this includes, you know, parent fatty acid compounds that are um, that folks get from, you know, essentially their diet, like arachidonic acid, uh, linoleic acid, and these fatty acid compounds are essential, and you know, you need them for key biological processes. And as a as a component of their essential function and role in physiology, they are metabolized into secondary um, molecules that can stimulate different things like immune responses, cardiovascular function. Um, they're also important for, um, you know, kidney function. So these, these secondary molecules um, are, are really, you know, key signals of biological processes. And so when you measure them and then you see that there are altered levels or different concentrations associated with higher concentrations of phthalates, then you start to be concerned because, you know, it essentially suggests that perhaps that the chemicals are influencing that metabolism of those bioactive lipids. And if they're influencing that metabolism, they might be influencing all those downstream processes, you know, that, that I just, you know, laid out. And that's, you know, that's when we start to um, find that there might be a, a problem with that, because those downstream processes could be influencing um, the developing fetus. So using a lotion that has too much phthalates in it could make, <laughs> could make your child uh, have delayed development, maybe some kind of uh, behavioral issues. I mean, are these the kind of downstream impacts you're looking at? Well, we're trying to disentangle that. Um, it's it's still very early stages um, in terms of um, those outcomes. But you know, some of my colleagues in, in that I collaborate, you know, in these cohorts have found associations with phthalates um, and um, altered, you know, infant neurodevelopmental parameters. And so we are seeing um, of evidence so far that there are some associations. And so now that we've seen those relationships with phthalates and neurodevelopment, this next stage that I'm proposing is trying to find these linking pathways 
uh, with these bioactive lipids that might be explaining some of these relationships. Yeah. And of course, as humans, we're all eating perhaps produce that has pesticides. We're putting on these lotions. We're eating out of plastic containers. We're walking outside where there's heavy traffic. So we're exposed to mixtures of pollutants all the time. So can you outline, you know, first why that's a challenge for researchers like yourself and how folks like you try to best capture what these mixtures might be doing to us or disentangling them if, if that's what you're doing? Yeah. So, yeah. So thanks for bringing that up. Um, you know, there's, there's, hundreds of thousands of chemicals that we're exposed to. And like you said, you know, pesticides and some of pesticides have been shown, you know, in mechanistic models to be neurotoxic. <clears throat> um, so when you think about, you know, the, the cumulative exposures of pesticides, phthalates, toxic metals like lead, and, you know, what, what, is so challenging about understanding any single chemical class is that they're not acting alone, right? You, you have these different exposures that are also influencing these biological pathways. And they're also through that mechanism potentially influencing um, those outcomes like neurodevelopment. And so, you know, what's, I'd say in that space of disentangling the mechanisms, I think what's really challenging is, you know, one of the studies I published um, uh, uh, like a couple of years ago is we looked at like four different chemical classes, you know, phthalates included, toxic metals included. Um, and we saw that they're having these, in some cases, divergent associations with these biological pathways and these biomarkers. And so, when you see divergent pathways, it's really tricky because it's hard to understand what that implication is in terms of the downstream effects. Like, are they acting sort of against each other, like antagonistically? Um, is this an issue of temporality where we've only measured the exposures once and the and the biomarkers once? So we're not capturing the bigger picture, right? So there's a lot of unanswered questions in, in terms of like these mixtures effects. Um, but I think in that chaos and confusion of all these different divergent relationships, I think there's something really compelling in terms of this really emphasizes the need to look at chemicals um, as a whole mixture because you're going to miss things if you don't, right? If you focus on just one chemical class, you're really going to miss the effects that other chemical classes are having. And it's it's really not conducive for risk assessment, you know, when you think, when you're ignoring those different chemical classes. And so, you know, in terms of, you know, taking the risk assessments and thinking of downstream policy implications, I think it's really critical that, you know, we start to evolve from this one chemical at a time, you know, policy approach and thinking about, you know, all of these chemicals um, cumulatively. So that leads me nicely into my next question. And maybe that's in part your answer was, was thinking about, I've been, I, personally, I've been writing about BPA for more than a decade now. And uh, the bad news keeps coming and the studies keep finding impacts, whether it's in animal animal studies or, or correlation, human epidemiological studies. 
and and it's still not regulated, right? Nothing happens. And I, one of the things I realized as a journalist pr- pretty early on that I think is was surprising to me, and I think is surprising to other people, is that everything on the shelf isn't tested to the to the extent that you think it is. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, you're you're talking about phthalates in things that are probably in our, my shower right now. Um, so. Where, where is the regulation failing? So maybe one one aspect you mentioned is not looking at things as classes, rather trying to look at them individually. But what else? What else could we or should we be doing? That's a that's a big question. Um, you know, I I think there's there's so many different things we could be doing better. Um, but you know, one of the things for uh, for sure is. Um, you know, in addition to looking at the cumulative effects, you know, thinking about um, better capturing, you know, different routes of exposure and integrating that um, holistically, especially um, thinking about, you know, different historically marginalized communities as well, um, because there is historic exposure that needs to be accounted for in in marginalized communities right so you know some communities are exposed to not only the phthalates but high levels of air pollution toxic lead um there's you know uh, pfos in in the drinking water um so thinking about historical exposures as well is really important because that really contextualizes the current state of the problem that those communities might be facing. Whereas if you just look at the chemical class in isolation without thinking about those historic exposures, you're going to underestimate the risk that those communities are experiencing. What would you tell someone who's an expecting mother? That's, um, you know, I think what I would tell them is, that, you know, well, I, I think in general, what I, I would tell folks is that, you know, a lot of the solutions, the really big impact solutions are going to come at the at the regulatory policy level. Um, we can try to limit our exposures as a consumer by, you know, not using this product or that product, um, you know, avoiding different, you know, different um, uh, different products. But that's really so marginal in terms of exposure reduction. I think the onus is should really be on regulators and industry to not use these chemicals and to use safer alternatives. Um, or if if some of these chemicals are not essential, basically, yeah, like they shouldn't be produced. Um, so in terms of you know what I tell folks when they ask me about like reducing things, like in addition to you know avoiding certain products, I would say um, it's really also going to take a lot of civic engagement to push policymakers to do responsible, um, to, to make responsible decisions on reducing these harmful exposures. That's really where the big impact um, exposure reduction is gonna come from. And so, 
you know, I, I, I think that's, that's where we really have to invest our energy and our effort as, you know, scientists, as activists, um, and, and sort of pushing policymakers and industries to, to sort of do better. Was there an aha moment for you or something that you learned when you were, when you were uh, researching these exposures that, that you don't think most people would know about something kind of surprising, interesting, shocking? Um, you know, I think like for me, it's, it's been, well, I mean, the first part was just seeing how many chemicals we're exposed to is pretty alarming, right? Um, and there's estimates that there's like hundreds of thousands of registered and, you know, thousands of unregistered chemicals too. And that is really problematic because, you know, as, as a scientist, it's really, it's really challenging to investigate the health effects of these chemicals when there's like such a large mountain of chemicals, right? And so um, I think that was been sort of a huge moment um, in terms of the way I think about the problem. Um, and it's also compelled me to not only investigate them to the best I can with these epi cohorts, you know, we're very limited in those cohorts on what we can measure, right? Just because of cost. So, so that's compelled me to, you know, in addition to focusing on those, also think about how we can drive policy forward. Um, and, you know, one of the things I've been working on, um, you know, in my, in my role at UCS, in my past role at UCSF, and I'm, I'm still carrying it forward, um, is thinking about, you know, developing a framework to inform policy action um, when there's limited research um, and to sort of, you know, how can we drive decision-making forward, um, you know, so that we can reduce exposures without having to necessarily um, conduct these large epi cohorts that will take many, many years, you know, to do. So, so finding that balance has been really tricky. Um, and, and that's, you know, something sort of that I've been um, focusing on a lot recently. And, and it's really great in terms of um, bridging my policy bug, right, into, um, you know, my science hat. <laughs> I wonder if that, that might be the answer to my next question. I was thinking about uh, a lot of, um, everybody in the Agents of Change program, there's a, there's a real importance placed on using your research to spur positive change in communities. And I think in some instances, well, I've seen this with reporting. When we report on a fence line community and, and there's a power plant, it's a very it's a very clear link. This, this, these people are being harmed by this thing. How can we make that known and spur action? It's, it's easy. It's local. Whereas what you're looking at is so ubiquitous and big. And um, really we're all exposed to the, uh, to, to these compounds and, and some communities more than others, but being such a big unwieldy problem, I'm wondering how you go about trying to make that change happen. Yeah. Uh... So that's definitely an ongoing brain, you know, uh, workshopping and brainstorming process in, you know, in terms of like how I've been approaching it with my collaborators at UCSF, you know, so we're, we're developing this 
this framework um, for environmental health policy, right? And, you know, the goal of the framework is to develop a process, a very transparent process for evaluating scientific evidence to inform policymakers to, to take action on an environmental contaminant. And so in that process, it requires the integration of key decision criteria, right? Like how will you benefit, how will you balance benefits, um, the costs and benefits of an intervention? How will you balance environmental justice and the potential to essentially, you know, push back against um, systemic racism. You know, how can the intervention do that in terms of environmental hazards? And in this process, like, I think the way that, you know, we've sort of started to approach it is um, bringing in key um, stakeholders um, from, you know, NGOs, from the government, from, um, you know, uh, different community organizations, and really list, trying to listen on their input. Um, and so that's one of the most recent things we did, you know, in this, um, in this project was, was, you know, bring together a workshop of different key stakeholders. And so now going forward, um, we, you know, we're synthesizing through that information. And, and as we develop future, you know, case studies and, and applications for our, our policy framework, um, I think we'll continue to sort of bring in community um, engagement and, and really trying to get their input every step of the way so that um, we're impacting, you know, a potential intervention with their um, ideas in mind and very, you know, um, integrated into how we're approaching the um, uh, the potential intervention or recommendation. I remember talking to Dr. Reginald Seeley, who who spoke to the Agents of Change at some point, and he mentioned when he worked on the Hill for a little while how incredibly busy policymakers are. Yeah. So this idea, <laughs> this idea of you doing some of the work for them and taking the studies and running them through. Um, this project and giving them different out, outputs of this would do this and this would do that and there's benefits here, cost saving here, I think is brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a big, it's a big, you know, uh, hill, but I, I think that, you know, I'm optimistic um, and I think we have a stellar team of collaborators and we've brought together, you know, a great steering committee to help guide us. It, so it's, it's really exciting. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful that we can continue that work, you know, and, and really influence policymakers in the future. Excellent. I just have a couple more questions for you, Max, and this has been a really good time. Is there anything else that you want to mention that you are optimistic about? Some of these topics are just heavy. Um, what else out there gets you excited or hopeful? Yeah, I think, you know, um, in terms of like the science, I, I, I am pretty, I'm getting optimistic about how, you know, some of the funding opportunities that have been announced through, you know, through the NIH a lot, you know, there's, I'm starting to see more and more um, emphasis on 
you know, important research that has implications for environmental justice. Um, and not just, you know, NIH, but also like, you know, the EPA, there's, there is an environmental justice intent in some of these, you know, opportunities. Um, so I'm cautiously optimistic that, you know, they can influence positive change and promote, you know, social justice, um, and, you know, and hopefully the folks that, you know, get these different funding mechanisms can incorporate community input um, and and really drive, um, you know, environmental justice forward. And I think there's also a lot of potential in terms of, um, you know, a lot of initiatives that the Biden administration is doing in terms of trying to integrate social justice into um, a lot of their, you know, regulatory frameworks. And so I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic about that. I really hope it can be sustained after like the midterm elections um, and hopefully in the next four years, but, you know, I don't, we'll see. Um, but <laughs> Politi- <crossing here. laughs> yeah. political, political realities, yeah. uh, unfortunately, sometimes, but, you know, I, I, what I will say is the, the, the fact that there is an awareness um you know, easy for me to say, I, I'm not a member of a community that is dealing with these things. But I think the fact that there is awareness right now uh, is a positive, positive step in itself. Um, and, and hopefully that that continues to bring about change. So Max, I have three rapid fire questions where you can just give me one word or phrase and then we can we can move on getting you out of here and the rest of your day. So one of my all time favorite movies is Moulin Rouge. When I have downtime, I am most likely cycling outdoors. Oh gosh, me too. I'm I'm taking one as soon as we get done here. Yeah. And I can I cannot start my day without coffee. <laughs> Perfect. We are two for two for three on our uh, on matching each other there. And Max, my last question: What is the last book that you read for fun? Um, I just started reading uh, this book called. On Earth, we're briefly gorgeous, and um, I, I haven't finished it yet, so I'll let you know when, when I finish it. But so far, it's um, really poetic. <laughs> and who is the author on that? Um, I hope I'm pronouncing uh, their name right. Ocean Vuong. Yeah. On, on Earth, we're briefly gorgeous. I love mm-hmm. the title. Yeah, it's a beautiful title, and their background is largely in you know. Um, in creative writing and poems. So it's, it's got that sort of, you know, that vibe in there uh, quite a bit. Excellent. Well, Max, thank you so much for taking time today. Uh, I really mean it that I am so excited that you're part of the team and I get to see you and talk to you and brainstorm with you on how to grow this program. So thank you so much for today. Yeah. Thanks so much for inviting me. All right, that's all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Max. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit agentsofchangeinej.org and click the donate button. This podcast was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team. Dr. Ami Zoda, Dr. Yoshida Ornelas Van Horn, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Loraya Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and Maria Paula Rubiano. Our music is Now Sun by Poddington Bear. Our team would like to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangeinej at gmail.com. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. 
Again, we will be off in August, but we will be right back with you in September. So enjoy the rest of your summer and rejoin me next time when I speak with Dr. Annie Belcourt, an American Indian professor in the College of Health at the University of Montana School of Public and Community Health Sciences Department. Have a great week and have a great rest of your summer, folks.